Hi everyone, welcome to The Cranog. Today we have myself, Rebecca, David, Graham and Mila and we're going to be chatting a little bit about where uh, folklore meets history. So it's hard to think of any character from Scottish history who's become more of a legend than William Wallace. So he's Scotland's national hero, the subject of dozens of stories and statues as well as misconceptions, the latter in no small part thanks to a a wee film called Braveheart. So there's plenty of well-documented factual exploits of Wallace, like the battles of Stirling Bridge or Falkirk, but he became more than just a military leader very early on in history. The Scottish people needed a figure of hope and the big man with the big sword was a perfect person to fill that role. Myths and legends sprang up wherever he went, stories about him grew arms and legs, and unfortunately we've got very few contemporary records of his exploits. Most of the wild legends come from a a biography about Wallace, written around 100 years after he died by a man called Blind Harry, who I'm not sure we can entirely trust. He may not even have been blind, for all we know. For anybody who doesn't know who Wallace was, He rose to prominence at the end of the 13th century, fighting against English troops who were occupying Scotland during a time of great turbulence. Now that part of the story is very long and complicated, so I'm not going to go into too many details. But basically he burst onto the scene in 1297, during an episode known as the Action at Lanark. And that's where the first romantic folk element comes in. What we know for sure is that a scuffle broke out at the court of William Hesselrig, the Sheriff of Lanark, And during the fight, Wallace killed him. In the stories, that was all because of his wife, Marion Braidfoot. It said that she helped Wallace escape from some soldiers through her back door, and later she paid the price for it. Her execution was an attempt to flush the rebellious Scot out of hiding, and it worked a little bit too well. Under cover of darkness, Wallace and his band of merry men broke into Hesselrig's apartments, murdered the sheriff, destroyed most of the garrison and burned Lanark to the ground. Even if it's been exaggerated or romanticised, we definitely know there's some truth in that story. However, there are some legends of Wallace that lean a little bit more towards the folklore side. And this one takes place long after the Battle of Falkirk. Wallace and his warriors are on the run from the English once again. And with the pursuers hot on their heels, one of the group, a man called Fowden, was slowing the rest of them down. And he shouted ahead to Wallace just to just leave him behind, save themselves. And without any time to lose or really think about it, Wallace decided, right, either Fowden's betrayed us and he's tipped off the English, or he's an honourable man and he's sacrificing himself. If he was being noble, then he's going to be captured and no doubt brutally tortured by the enemy anyway. So, without the time to debate or to argue with him, he decided there's one solution that suits both scenarios. Without a word, Wallace pulls out his sword and he strikes Fowden's head clean off his body before just turning, sprinting off to catch up with the rest of them. The group, they escaped, and that night they're sheltering in a place called Gaskin Hall when a strange sound comes from outside. And a couple of the men, they crept away to check out what the noise was. And he didn't come back. So a couple more go after to look for them, Same thing happens, and two by two, 
the group dwindled away until Wallace found himself sitting in Gaskin Hall all alone. With a weary sigh, he walks to the open door just to come face to face with the ghosts of Fowden. I mean, I say face to face, but his face wasn't where it should have been. Fowden's bloody head was in his hand, which he proceeded to toss at William Wallace. And those cold, dead eyes staring into his soul. So Wallace does what any sensible person would do, and he just launches it right back at the ghost before running for his life. Fear's a pretty good motivator, so he was flying like the wind through the fields, and he turns back, check if he's being followed. And he saw Gaskin Hall was up in flames. They could just about make out the headless figure of Fowden, standing on top of the tower, his head still in his arms, staring right at him. And that was it. That was an experience scary enough to shake even Scotland's national hero. That is, I think, the first ever story I've heard where William Wallace is, as you say, scared of something. Oh, yeah. And not being a big man. Yeah, he can, you know, when it comes to, to spears and swords and armies, he's, he's fine. But, you know, a ghost, and I, I feel that I appreciate that. They're, yeah. It's the kind of horror films I don't like. I don't mind the, the you know, the scary thriller things is when there's a ghost involved. Paranormal activity gets me every time. I'm gone. I don't, it seems like William Wallace would be terrible in a horror film, though, because like, it's always, don't go through the door, don't go, and then they go through the door. William Wallace would be like, nah, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very short film. He knows his limits. He's fine with swords, yeah, yeah. blood, gore, but... Just one more admirable quality. I do really like the kind of almost like Robin Hood elements that have kind of weaved their way into... William Wallace's kind of legend, if you like. See, I was thinking Robin Hood when I heard the, the sheriff bit, and then I was like, and then burned the place to the ground, and I was like, this guy's got a bit far. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's a lot of things, a lot of theories that say that, that William Wallace was part of the um, inspiration for Robin Hood because he, yeah, he was technically an outlaw. He hid in the Ettrick Forest, that was where he lived, basically with his men because it was safe there. People like the a lot of the English soldiers wouldn't go in. Um, he actually the whole stuff about having a big sword is a bit of a myth as well because actually his seal, the only sort of one of the few th- sort of physical bits of Wallace that we have, uh, was a a bow and arrow. So they think that he was actually more of a, more of an archer. And the name Wallace comes from, or they think probably comes from Wales. It was you know his some one of his ancestors was somebody de Wallace de Wales from Wales. That's really interesting. But it would have been even more an unbelievable story if he'd managed to chop their head off with an arrow. <laughs> so they needed the sword in there. <laughs> Maybe he used the sword as the arrow and just used the bow. Ah. <laughs> or he could have just used a caber. Well, I think the Wallace sword they've got was... I think it's fused two sword, two old swords together. So I don't think it... When they mm. x-rayed that there actually ever was one big old sword, it was, I think, formerly two. I could be wrong on that. It, I think it's one of those things where it's been repaired and restored and added to and it's like, I can't remember what the old Greek thing is, the, the ship that if you replace every single plank and thing and sail in a ship, is it the same ship? It's the, the film gets a lot of stick for being obviously, you know, historically inaccurate, but it's a, it's it's slightly unfair in that the film didn't make up a lot of stuff. It just took its stories from a lot of already wild histories that had been written that were probably nonsense, like Blind Harry's um, biography. It's like it's, it's basically just a big epic long poem. 
Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Like, it's clearly, a lot of it is just ramblings. Um, and it's like a, it's already been, it's like a film. That's like the film version uh, of yeah. what was probably true. Um, so, yeah, that's it. It's, it just sort of, the film just picks bits and pieces out of probably already sort of folk stories. And that's it. I mean, what Wallace is within, you know, a generation or two was already a bit of a folk legend. That's that's why people like stories. It's the, you know, the the outlandish, uh, outlandish things that people do that, like, captures people's imaginations. Yeah, you need a bit of, of fantasy around Wallace with mm-hmm. the big freedom fighter character needs a bit more. Yeah. A bit more drama. Not that he wasn't quite impressive in his own right for what he did historically, but yeah. A ghost story adds to everything. I was just quickly thinking about like every depiction you see of William Wallace is always him with a sword. And I genuinely would never have thought about the bow and arrow. I know it's like going back a few steps, but I'm like my brain's still there in terms of like, what do you think of when you think of William Wallace? Apart from that scene in Braveheart where he's like charging at the armies, but it's always him and his sword. And I'm actually quite baffled that potentially there was not even ever a sword. It's just it's weird. It's like I guess a sword is a very iconic weapon. It's like you know, it's like, it's more like a symbol than anything else. Because even then, even in the famous battles of Stirling Bridge and Falkirk, etc., you know, it was all one one and lost with spears. Like, again, we weren't really using swords. So, yeah, that's the interesting thing. And that, that enormous, yeah. like, six-foot sword thing would just be useless in a fight. I think people tend to associate archery with, like, kind of roguish... I mean, because of Robin Hood um, and, like, I guess, like, D&D kind of classes, like, rogues and stuff. It's all very stealthy and light. But, like, bows are really heavy. And I imagine the bow that... William Wallace would have been using would have been really powerful, so it would have taken about the strength as it took to lift that massive sword as well. So it's, yeah, it doesn't speak less to his strength. Yeah, to be fair, it makes a lot more sense when you think about his tactics were all sort of hit and run, ambush. You know, he wasn't good at the the stand in a fixed battle thing. It wasn't really his stuff. All of his victories were, were little ones and you know when you don't have as many men as your your opponent it's you know you're better off losing as few as possible and, and hiding in the trees and firing a bunch of arrows is probably the best way to do that Um, this next story feels very much like recent history, as the man it's about was born in 1875, but it does go to show that Scottish folklore and traditions continue to inspire famous figures in pop culture through the ages. The man in question is Alistair Crowley, um, a gentleman with a name as unique as his backstory, and if you look at the description to see the spelling, I'm sure that it's not going to be what you think the spelling of Alistair is. Um, David actually suggested I look into this one and he said it would be a fun one to research and he really wasn't wrong. (laughs) Um, But my initial thoughts when I kind of heard the name uh, was actually about the show Supernatural and the character Fergus Crowley in that show. And what do you know it, they are actually inspired. I'm sorry, the show was actually inspired by the life of Alistair Crowley. 
So who was he? Um, he was born in Royal Leamington Spa, which to anybody who doesn't live in the UK, that's not a venue, uh, is actually a town in England. And he grew up in quite a rich family. His father owned a family business. Um, it was a brewing business, Crowley's Alton Ales. Um, at the time, that was a very lucrative business. And Alistair then also had quite a strange relationship with his mother. Um, she even called him the Beast, which we'll find in later on in the tale that he actually was quite proud of that nickname. And anyone who's watched Supernatural will kind of see that link. Um, and also the Crowley Alton Ales logo is a crow. Um, so again, we see a bit of resemblance there. Um, but Alistair had a very religious upbringing. Um, his family were very Christian, um, but over the years and into his adulthood, he did find himself questioning the Bible a lot. And a lot of the, a lot of the religious teachings that he was taught and the way that he was brought up, a lot of it, he would even go to his mentors at university and sort of question um, a lot of what he was reading. He studied philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Um, and eventually he did decide to go against a lot of the morality of Christianity. He started smoking and he was known to have sex with a lot of people, mainly prostitutes, men, women, it didn't really matter, anybody. <laughs> he was very sexually and spiritually open. Um, and he also engaged in kind of other behaviours that were deemed sin-worthy by the Bible, so things like taking drugs. Um, and when he was at the University of Cambridge, he alongside studying moral science and philosophy, he also wanted to study English lit literature, which at the time wasn't even a course that was offered, but he had a tutor. Um, and this is when he became a poet, and over the years he did write a lot of different poems that some were published, um, and he had different uh, kind of stories and books also published throughout his life, one of which was published in Vanity Fair. Um, and his life was really exciting. He did a lot of traveling. Um, he initially traveled to Russia in his early years. Um, and he actually intended to become a diplomat, uh, but steered away from this and decided to um, go on a path of discovery and gained an interest in the occult, uh, which is really kind of where the star story starts to get a little more exciting. Um, Alistair was already quite into alchemy and over the next sort of few years after university he traveled around Switzerland and Paris and India and eventually ended up in Mexico um, where he claims to have been welcomed into the Freemasons and in 1901 he also decided to become a Buddhist monk. He spent a lot of time as well in Indian temples and he studied a lot of teachings and eventually devoted himself to the Hindu practice of Raja Yoga which is a type of meditation uh, which he said helped him to reach enlightenment. Later on in 1904, uh, he ended up marrying his friend's sister to prevent her from having an arranged marriage. And that was something that his fam the, the family of the woman were just completely outraged by, but he didn't feel that he was bound by all these kind of religious things and he kind of had his own tune to everything. Um, but after their marriage, the couple went to Cairo and presented themselves as prince and princess. Unknown why, but um, he did have a temple room in their apartment where they lived. And in this temple room, he tried to summon different Egyptian deities. Um, at the same time, he was also studying a lot of Islamic teachings and how to become one with God uh, alongside learning Arabic. So he was a very well-traveled, very well-educated man. Um, and over time, his wife was said to become slightly hysterical uh, in her claims. She said that um, different gods were speaking and were waiting for Alistair as the equinox of the god had come. 
uh, is what she said. Um, and this led to her one day taking him to a museum exhibit um, where she took him to a 7th century mortuary steel um, of a monk called Ankef and Konsu. Um, and this, the steel itself is a plaque um, with scriptures painted on in the wooden surface and translated, um, it talks about a chief of the gods, uh, which is something that Alistair potentially thought of himself as, especially because the exhibit number was number 666, which was known as the number of the devil or the beast, as his mother called him as a child. So he felt that these pieces kind of really fit together. Um, Alistair himself was also experiencing a lot of strange phenomena and claiming that he heard a voice telling him that humanity was entering a new eon and that he was destined to serve as the people's prophet. Um, he called that voice Awas and wrote down everything it told him in a book called the Book of the Law, which was actually the foundation of his religion, Thelema. Um, he also said he didn't know what to do with the book um, and was even said to resent it. Uh, he didn't want to carry out the things that the voice was telling him to do, so things like taking the steel from the museum and translating the book into every known language. And instead, he just gave the book to a lot of his friends who were also in the occult. And this led him to, in 1906, um, he travelled to China to meet a friend who was very intrigued by his book. And they were said to perform several rituals to try and contact Awis, um, the voice that was telling him about the new eon of humanity. But in his autobiography, Alistair claimed that he had been placed on earth to spread the wisdom of a purer form of paganism. And he did that through his works, or so he felt, and through the books that he wrote um, for readers and also for followers of Thelema, uh, of whom he had quite a few fo uh, loyal followers by that time. He claimed that it was magic that allowed him to communicate with higher powers and that the 20th century would mark an eon where people would be able to control their destiny. And the whole premise of Thelema, in short, was that all human beings have a true will and that they need to discover it and pursue it, much like he discovered his destiny to become a prophet, uh, which he did by traveling the whole world. Um, and he felt that people were all individuals, but part of a wider societal organism. Um, his religion, funnily enough, as throughout his life, sex played a very big part of his life. Uh, for anyone that does want to read on a little bit more into his backstory, because there really is a lot. His his life spans so many years of travel and just different experiences that he had. Um, but yeah, he really encouraged his followers and anyone who wanted to hear about his religion to be more sexually open and celebrate what he called kind of the three pillars of magic sex, um, which is um, kind of autoerotic, um, homosexuality and heterosexuality. Um, and in fact, in the 1920s, when he moved to Sicily, he established the headquarters for his religion. Um, he called it the Abbey of Thelema. And here his followers took part in several rituals and also experimented with drugs and different sexual acts. Um, and the Abbey, unfortunately, was only open for three years. Uh, I say unfortunately, but you'll know for the next bit why that was perhaps a good thing that it closed. Um, it was actually shut down by the Italian government uh, following a ritual where a man died after he allegedly consumed the blood of a cat. Um, and following that scandal, Alistair was referred to as the wickest, wickedest man in the world, um, something that he frequently rebutted, saying that his work and his teachings freed people from, ev from, from everyday rule, earthly rules and opened up spiritual experiences. His religion and books 
also had him accused of many other things, including human sacrifice. Um, because he'd made a joke in one of his books about sacrificing 150 um, male children of perfect innocence and high intelligence every year. Um, but it turned out that that was just a joke about ejaculation rather than an actual sacrifice. So he wasn't a particularly serious guy. <laughs> um, and in his final days, um, it was noted that Alistair was unfortunately severely malnourished and also a heroin addict. And that was something that many say it contributed to his religious views and some of the things that he said and perhaps some of the voices that he said he was hearing. Um, he eventually died of chronic bronchitis at the age of 72. Um, and that was in 1947, so very much recent history. Um, and he no doubt led an interesting life, uh, one that's undoubtedly been embellished over the years and everywhere that you look, there seems to be something different about something that happened to him and an experience that he had somewhere on his wild travels across the globe. Um, but he's definitely a fascinating man and he's inspired quite a lot <laughs> throughout the years. Um, so definitely worth a further read because it's a lot longer than anything we could explain on this podcast, but definitely an interesting character. <laughs> what a fascinating man. <laughs> Isn't he just? <laughs> what a bizarre man. Very well travelled for the time. The fact he made it to 72 is quite impressive. I love how needy this voice was. Translate this book into every language in the world. Like his response to that was like, no. <laughs> the first time he seems to have said no to anything. I mean, he's travelled the whole world. I'm sure he probably could learn every language there is. He draws a line at translating it into every language. <laughs> it's impressive he managed to get booted out of Italy. Not even the mafia was booted out of Italy. <laughs> I really do want to know what this ritual was that involved the blood of a cat, first of all. Holy moly. There's, I can't remember the name of it, but his supposed house is in Inverness or near Inverness. Yeah, something like that. Um, and I can't remember the exact story around it, but I think it burnt down and then someone bought it and it was like done up again and then it burnt down again and then it was done up again. And it burnt down. It's honestly burnt down about three or four times now. Was it not the one of the ones in Led Zeppelin bought it? I think. I think it's supposed to be haunted by demons that Alistair summoned accidentally, mm-hmm. or, really? or he was supposed to summon them so that he could banish them or something like that. And he got distracted before he could finish, or forgot, <laughs> or something like that. So he was like, "I'll or do it." <laughs> halfway through his, his magic ritual and was like oh i've got to do this I, I i will remember to come back i'll put a pin in this and he went away but i'm pretty sure that's the story something like that and he never never finished the second half of it so that's why the, the house keeps burning down <laughs> turns out the demons are actually just like Alistair, we want to go home. <laughs> Let us out. Pay for attention. Yeah. How much exactly. more gripping would like these fantasy series be if the evil sorcerer was in <laughs> fact just like a really distracted, like traveling the world eccentric heroin addict taking like... part in in magic sex? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
It's actually unclear yeah. if anyone still follows his religion. Yeah, I was like, curious about that as well, but I've not really seen anything, so... Can you read the book? I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh, I might... I don't know, apparently it's, <laughs> apparently it's uh, it can bring curses on you just by having oh, it in your house. Okay, no thanks. So, Does that count if it's PDF? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've not looked into the, the, the mythological nonsense around it. <laughs> My laptop burned down. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I remember um, I was listening to a bit about him on the No Such Thing as a Fish mm. podcast, the one done by the QI people. And um, one of the guys in it was talking about it. He was like, and I did mean to read some of the book to see what it was like, but my wife refuses to have it in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Fair. So similar to Graham's story about William Wallace and his kind of connections to Robin Hood, I'm going to be talking about another Scottish Robin Hood figure called Jamie McPherson. And he's the hero of the traditional Scottish song known as McPherson's Rant or McPherson's Lament or McPherson's Farewell. It has three different names. Um, And it was reportedly penned by the outlaw himself, which is fun. So Jamie was born the illegitimate son of Laird McPherson and a Romani woman he met at a wedding. He was taken into his father's house and became an excellent swordsman and a musician and when his father died he went back to live with his mum and then turned to the roving trade as the song says where he became an outlaw. It's said that he targeted lairds and other wealthy landowners and he had support from locals who often benefited from his thievery. He earned himself a dreaded reputation among the wealthy of Aberdeenshire where he operated. He's also reported to have marched into towns on market days with his band behind a piper which is truly iconic behaviour. The Scottish Legal News said about him that he was said to cut quite a dash and was in beauty, strength and stature rarely equalled. He was a legendary swordsman and a gifted fiddler. To what extent his attributes have been exaggerated in the telling we'll never know but he does seem to have been a charismatic figure and attracted a band of traveller followers who paid scant regard to the law. He was captured a couple of times, only to be rescued by friends of his, but he finally met his downfall in 1700 when he was just 25 years old. Lord Duff of Braco is the Sheriff of Nottingham to our Robin Hood, and the Lord was foiled on several attempts at trying to capture Macpherson. At St Rufus Fair in Keith, Macpherson's men put up a resistance against Duff's, where one of Macpherson's outlaws was killed in the struggle, and Jamie was finally captured for the final time. Folk tradition, inspired by the famous song about the event, states that McPherson was able to be captured because a woman threw a blanket over him from a high window, um, which inhibited his movement so that he could be disarmed and then eventually captured. McPherson's sentence dictated that he would be hanged on the gallows between two and three, but just shortly before the execution was due to take place, Duff spotted a messenger riding over the bridge towards the gallows, and he was afraid that they carried a pardon for McPherson, so he had the clock on the town hall set forward by 50 minutes so that the execution could be carried out legally before the reprieve arrived. And the clocks in the town were not actually changed back for many years afterwards. While he was in the cell awaiting his execution, Macpherson penned the, fam- the famous Macpherson's Lament or Macpherson's Farewell or Macpherson's Rant, which you might have heard sung by the Corries or played on the bagpipes. He penned the song in a cell, sung it on the gallows while playing his fiddle, and then invited one of his friends to step forward and play the instrument at his wake, 
when no one accepted the offer because to admit being McPherson's friend would ultimately condemn them too, McPherson declared that no one would get to play his fiddle again and he broke it over a stone before, some say, leaping from the block to take his own life. Now, of course, McPherson's outlaw activity played a part in his demise, but there was also a terrible law in Scotland at the time that incriminated the Romani people, of which he was one. Um, this was passed in 1609 by the Scottish government and was known as the Act Against the Egyptians, making it legal to detain and execute people who could be proven to have Romani descent. So McPherson's ran is a story about an outlaw, but it's also a story about deep-rooted injustice. McPherson's story captured the imaginations of many writers, including Robert Burns, who adapted the song that McPherson supposedly wrote into the version that we know today, and Walter Scott, who wrote an account of the outlaw's story. I really love the story because it has all of the dramatic and heroic trappings of a folk story, but it is more or less completely rooted in history. Of course, it's hard to tell what elements have been embellished by writers like Scott, such as McPherson playing the fiddle at the gallows and his chivalrous approach to robbery, but we know that the vast majority of the story, including the part where the clock gets put forward by 50 minutes, is historical. And if you want to listen to an absolutely banging version of the song, check out McPherson's rant by Trail West. It's a, it's a great song by Trail West. I like that. It's version. so good. Yeah, it's very emotional. I always get get a wee bit choked up when I listen to it. Yeah, no, I have. I love the story. Mm-hmm. I always wow. think it was weird that the, the song was supposed to have been written by him, but also includes all the stuff about being put forward fifteen minutes and smashing. <laughs> and I was like, how could he write that? It all happened immediately before he died. You could see the future. That makes more sense if Robert Burns and Laura Scott, etc. Got their hands on it. I don't think I'd be as gracious as him. I'd be like trying to stall as long as possible because that's just some (laughs) cheek putting it forward. I know. That's not a loophole, that's just cheating. (laughs) Yeah, that's why he's like the pesky sheriff of Nottingham. You wouldn't get away with that if you had your iPhone or your (laughs) iPad that automatically stays at the time. None of that in modern days. (laughs) Don't remember which version I heard this in. But I remember reading one version where he broke the fiddle over the executioner's head, which I always thought was hilarious. I think I've read that too. <laughs> At that point, I was also like, why did he just let him have a fiddle? Yeah. It was like, what do you want? For? Maybe it was like, what do you want for your last meal? It's like, I, I want, want a fiddle. fiddle. <laughs> I'm really curious as to which one added that now, Scott or Burns. <laughs> I'm trying to think who is... Burns tends to be less practical. But Walter Scott's mad enough to add that just for the romanticness. Mm. So I don't know which one's decided to throw that in because I feel like that was probably not in the original. What I forgot to mention actually was that McPherson's supposed broken fiddle is in the Clan McPherson Museum. You can see it. It's interesting how many sort of folk story or many folk heroes are like outlaws and bandits and robbers mm-hmm. like you know mcpherson or, or rob Roy or all these sort of people you know they're not necessarily the nicest of people they're not like good honest hard working people i mean they were essentially criminals but everybody <laughs> seems to like them or at least in the stories everybody likes them mm-hmm. well i think we're just like an underdog don't we yeah and anything people love the underdog so the small little rebel against the, the big forces. Yeah. It's always an interesting story. It's always one that everybody will be rooting for the smaller character. Yeah, definitely. And they've become the people we remember as well. I mean, all the stories tonight, I don't think we've talked about particularly 
nice people. <laughs> but they're the ones whose stories have kind of continued on. William Wallace was a lovely man. So, I'm going to be talking about Greyfriars Bobby, our beloved little doggy from Greyfriars Kirk in Edinburgh. There's a nice little bronze statue to him that everybody bops on the nose, so if you go you'll see a very shiny nose dog. People shouldn't rub the nose, because they, okay. they had to repair the statue because everybody kept rubbing the bloody nose. It's something tour guides started telling groups to do, and then it caught on, and they're like, oh, it's for good luck. It's not for good luck. You just you see pictures of his nose, it used to stick out. Like an inch. No, it's completely flat. Don't bit the snoot. So, don't bit the snoot, people. That's the message of the tale. We've got the message of the tale <laughs> before we even started the tale. So, Greyfriars Bobby reportedly came to Edinburgh first in the 1850s with his master, John Grey the Shepherd. Um, over time, in coming to the city, John Grey decided the shepherd's life was no longer for him. It was a bit tiring. So, he decided to go for the notoriously easy job of being an Edinburgh policeman at that time with all the grave robbers and the murderers and the such like. Um, so he moved into the a little um, lodgings just off the Cowgate, which is one of the kind of narrow cavernous streets that runs under the bridges in Edinburgh. Uh, Grey and Bobby moved there, not just one of them individually. And John Grey would patrol the streets with the trusty Greyfriars Bobby. Um, as his little patrol dog, a very cute little patrol dog. Although terriers at the time were were designed to be dogs used in hunting, so they maybe would have had some practicality. Now, old John, or as sometimes them, he was also known, I think, in some of the tales as Jock, and him wandering about the streets with Bobby were a beloved pairing. Everybody would greet them in the streets. The kids would love to play with little Bobby. Um, but on the death of Grey came the real fame of Greyfriars Bobby. Uh, the classic story of him attending the gravesite. So it said that, that Greyfriars Bobby marched with the funeral procession all the way up to the kirkyard when his master died, uh, but couldn't go in because the rules at the graveyard at the time prevented dogs roaming the graveyard. So he had to be taken back to the lodgings uh, that, that Grey had lived at. Um, and then from there snuck out in the night climbed under the gates and sat at his master's grave and then the, the church people would take him back in the morning boot him out, you're not allowed in there and he'd sneak back in and so on and so forth until the church elders gave up and just said fine, you're our dog now you live here um, an exception to the rule for, for the cute little dog Um he became a regular at the Greyfriars Kirk after that and at uh, a little eatery on Greyfriars Place uh, that was owned by a Mr John Trail uh, who would give him his dinner. Yeah, church visitors loved to come and visit the dog. It was said that visitors to Greyfriars Kirkyard went up over a hundred times during the time that Greyfriars Bobby was there. So all the visitors not so much coming to mourn the relatives but to see the cute dog. You can see that catching on nowadays just as much. It was said that, that Greyfriars Bobby would be there out in all weathers looking after the master's grave attending him, a story that all the newspapers at the time loved and the, the local community really got behind. Um, and only the very worst weathers would, would tempt him to venture indoors to, 
to the neighbouring houses or to the, the pubs or, or um, lodgings that would occasionally take him in in the worst winter nights. Uh, and then came as well part of the legend was that on the one o'clock gun, Bobby was, was ready for his dinner. He was used to going to the little eatery owned by Mr. Trail for his dinner at one o'clock. Um, and it was said that he was joined by William Down, a cabinet maker from George Harriet's school who befriended him and then used to then again take him for his dinner there at one o'clock during his lunch break. <laughs> so Bobby loved his, his wee dinners out. Um, unfortunately, a bit of bad luck soon set upon our lovely little Bobby because somebody must have taken a dislike to him because they reported him to the local authorities who said that as a dog without an owner, he wasn't a licensed dog and with an act that came in saying all dogs must have a license, he was arrested for not having one. Now this caused an outcry with all the people of Edinburgh because they loved this dog, and of course with the students. Because if there's anything we've learned from modern campus days where they have the de-stressing dogs with little Labradors and puppies and all come out to visit them on special days during uh, the studying times, students love a dog. And this case was no different. So the students at Edinburgh University raised the money to get the licence for little Greyfriars Bobby and William Chambers, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, had an engraved collar with a licence presented to Greyfriars Bobby so that he could continue to resume his watch over his master's grave. And it said that's what he did for the rest of his life with all the visitors coming to see him. The lovely little, little terrier that everybody loved. Uh, and then he eventually died and 1872 said to be about 16 years old and he died at Mr Trail's house the, the little eatery yeah one evening just curled up in front of the fire and that was him gone now that's the, the lovely little folktale side of Greyfriars Bobby how much of it is true there's a lot of scepticism around about um, Forbes McGregor who was a, a writer and historian who wrote Greyfriars Bobby the real story anyway uh, he decided that there, defi there definitely was a John Gray who uh, did in 1858 um, come to Edinburgh who had been a farm labourer and then became a policeman uh, and he reckoned that Greyfriars Bobby had come with him along with him at the time or at least a little terrier or sky terrier came along with him and that he did live off the cowgate so we're, we're doing well so far um, and that police, police were obliged to have watchdogs at the time so you know we've got another check off for him going on the patrols around um, the only little problem that we start to encounter then is that Trail who um, reported to have been the person that owned the eatery that Greyfriars Bobby used to at times visit with his master and then after he, he died would still go and visit and then on the one o'clock gun would go and go to the eatery for his restaurant Trail didn't actually start owning the eatery until four years after John Gray's death so there's a little inconsistency there but they can explain that in, in the book stating that it did seem that, that Bobby had frequented the eatery there and it had been owned by previous people in the past so maybe it wasn't Mr Trail at the start it had been some other owner that had fed him and he just kind of got past the tradition down with the new owners so it's not necessarily a, a bad mark there for our, our folkloric image of, of Greyfriars Bobby the next thing down though is that the one o'clock gun um, tradition of, of that's when he had his dinner it seems to have not came in until three years after he started his watch at the graveyard 
uh, when he was then befriended by a Sergeant Scott who was based at Edinburgh Castle. Um, and in 1861 taught the dog to show up at the eatery after he'd heard the gun go off so that he could get his restaurant meal then. So, you know, we're getting a wee bit more kind of piecing together. Although there are timescales of when Trail took over, was still a wee bit after that, it would still be the same eatery. It was shown to be known by previous people beforehand, so there still, still could be a potential to, to Bobby's lunchtime checking out. So it was suggested that Bobby didn't actually go out in all weathers. He was a bit of a wimp towards the end with uh, writings from the occupants of Candlemaker Row stating that they gave Bobby food and shelter on regular occasions uh, when it was raining a bit much or if it was a particularly cold night not necessarily just in the, the big snowy storms of winter as it had been reputed in the legends but you know he's a, he's a little terrier you can't expect too much of him and he was getting old towards the end if he did make it to 16 however there are suspicions as to Bobby's relatively long life uh, with him dying at 16 years old in 1872 now, you know, smaller dogs, they can live a fair while, but at the time, and for apparently being exposed to the elements for many years of his life, it was a little bit unusual, especially since he seemed to have changed appearance in the pictures um, in 1867. But it's not necessarily a bad mark. Maybe he just was having an off day or losing his hair or changing colour. Who knows? <laughs> um, there was also suspicion a little bit more cast Upon the Mr. Trail who had claimed to have fed Bobby at the one o'clock gun while he was still with his master despite the fact that he didn't own the restaurant until four years after his master died um, and that the one o'clock gun didn't actually go off until three years after his master had died um, so there's a little bit of suspicion around that as well but maybe Mr. Trail was just seeking to embellish the legend of, of Bobby's watch by adding a little bit of quirk and personality to him about his one o'clock meal uh, and as well trying to sell some food at his restaurant by saying oh yes it's it's like nowadays with your pictures of famous people on the wall these are our patrons no no I insist every day at one o'clock for the last ten years Greyfriars Bobby has visited us and he has always rented our food top notch um, and the more generous people had claimed that maybe Trail was just adding to the truth, as I say. Um, some slightly more judgy ones have said that he would put out other dogs while Greyfriar Bobby was chilling or a bit old that his old age he'd put out substitute ones on days when he was too tired. Or... But there was also a slightly more scathing review came up a few years back by a Dr. Jan Bonderson um, who took a slightly more pessimistic take on the whole Greyfriars Bobby legend, stating that it was pretty much a Victorian hoax. Um, it said that they were two dogs and neither of them had been a John Grey's. The first dog was a stray who wandered into Harriet's hospital and then was taken to the graveyard where he was taken in by a James Brown who was the curator of the cemetery um, and he loved to make a little bit of money off of telling locals this story of this poor dog who sat at his master's grave after which quite a lot of them would tip them for this lovely romantic story and he would then walk them round for a lovely place that he knew to eat at Mr Trail's restaurant so he'd get an extra little bit of money off the side there 
uh, Mr. Trail, of course, loving this side business. Then when the first Greyfriars Bobby died, decided he wasn't going to lose out on this massive increase in footfall. So he bought Mr. Brown a new dog that looked very similar so that he could continue on the, leg le the legend and continue getting the business. So based on that one, while there was a terrier, it was actually two terriers who were at the graveyard, neither of them actually mourning anyone in particular, just the fun story of a little curator of a cemetery, which does sound like a slightly dull job, so you know, maybe he needed a little sideline. Um, so that's a, a few different versions there. You've got the, the high folklore version, the high fantasy version of Greyfire's Bobby as this this martyr to his his father cause of, of sitting by him attentively watching his his grave guarding it from any harm as he guarded his his owner in life on her patrols in the streets of a policeman or we've got the kind of midground of he was still owned by John Gray but maybe the embellishments about his lunch times and about maybe necessarily his full length of lifespan were a little bit overly emphasised. Or we've got the third one of there wasn't a Greyfriars Bobby in any way that we really know him other than that there was a dog at Greyfriars. Take your pick of which one you fancy. I know which one I would prefer. Well, the last one's obviously false. I was just thinking with the amount of debunking you're doing, was there even a dog? Like, <laughs> I'm starting yeah, to doubt everything. Yeah, that's where it turns out it's actually a miniature pig the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when you go into Greyfriars, the first grave you see is Greyfriars Bobby. And there's a little pile of sticks. People leave sticks as gifts for him. Next time I'm in Edinburgh, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to bring a stick. I think you'll find a stick nearby. You don't need to bring one. <laughs> no, no, he needs one from Dundee. You don't understand. <laughs> Our sticks are just superior to your Edinburgh sticks. That's what's up. <laughs> I looked into what you'd said earlier, though, Graham, as well, about maybe I'm not even being a Sky Terrier. And... It was saying that it's highly likely it was actually a dandy Dinmont terrier. A what? A dandy Dinmont terrier. There you go. Which is apparently a little terrier dog from the borders. Um, they thought that was more likely because Sky Terrier at the time were fairly exclusive to the Isle of Sky. Not as many of them had made it onto the mainland, and Sky was over two hundred miles away at the time. Oh, that's whereas a a dandy Dinmont terrier came from 40 miles south at the borders and they were quite widespread against the south of Scotland and would have been owned by kind of farming people which John Gray apparently was or if it actually belonged to John Gray um, the only thing is I've had a look at what this dandy Dinmont Terrier looks like <laughs> and I, it doesn't look anywhere near as cute as a sky terrier it's a funny looking it's a, thing it's a funny looking teddy bear um, because <laughs> um, <laughs> The photos of Greyfriars Bobby, I always think, don't really... Like, the statue is a very polished version. If you, if you go to the, is it the Museum of Edinburgh on Royal Mile down Canongate, you can see Bobby's um, his collar and his bowl and pictures of him and stuff there. That's really cool. That's really cute. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today.
If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>